the value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products or to adopt any investment strategy. Good day, everyone, and welcome to the U.S. Lens. I'm Ron Insana. As you well know, public markets have been under pressure over the last seven months with no sign of necessarily relenting and moving forward in a meaningful manner. However, private assets may offer a very viable alternative to public markets, not only in the meantime, but possibly even for the longer term. Joining me now to talk about that is Tim Boole. He is the head of private equity products management at Schroeder's, here to talk about what's happening in the private equity world, private assets, and other areas that are, at least for some investors, off the beaten path. Tim, thanks for being with us today. Appreciate it. Thank you, if we can start first with uh, just an overview of, of private equity, private assets, if you will, um, and where we sit today. We've seen a lot of the big, big private equity players raise enormous sums of money, in one case, a $30 billion pool. Um, when you look at this and, and, and take a look at where we are in the private equity cycle, um, you've talked a little bit uh, among us about kind of a private asset 4.0 environment in the post-pandemic world. What exactly does that mean? Sure, yeah, no, so I mean, I think it's, it's, it's interesting because it charts how private equity has developed as an asset class um, over, over decades. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's important to understand that private equity, it can't really be treated as one. I mean, it, the way that investors look at it, um, it, there are so many different aspects to it, different ways of investing, different types of deals that you can do. And private assets 4.0 tries to tries to address some of that by looking at some of the expectations that investors have when investing in, in private equity. And and if we go back to the beginning, private equity was generally seen as, as as an attractive way to to generate a higher return, and that was very much sort of the the overriding motive of investors moving into private equity. You know, alongside that, then in case there, there was there was a greater focus on on thinking about other aspects around private equity. For example, the, the ESG aspects, the sustainability impact, what else would you be able to get from having that close ownership of a company? Could you steer and influence how a company develops and some of their practices? So that was another important aspect that, that kind of developed you know, on the, an additional layer of why investors like investing in private equity. That was then also followed by, well, thinking about private equity, it's not really just one asset class, it's about diversification within that within that ADAS class. And that also extends to other private asset areas, so private debt or infrastructure, for example. And then I think the most recent development, which is really capturing a lot of, a lot of attention, is the, the broadening access to private equity and private assets. So investors from, um, or different types of investors that previously have not been able to access private, private equity or private assets, are now being able to, whether that's through product innovation, changing regulation or technology, all of these things are enabling people to, to be able to access and invest in, in, in private assets in a way that hasn't been possible at all. So taking all of that together, we see the industry has developed and, and evolved a lot over a period of time. And that's when you talk about private assets, private assets 4.0, it's that multi-layered sort of uh, development of the, of the, of the business. Uh, let me go back to your first point about higher rates of return, and this goes back to the late 1980s, early 1990s when uh, 
private equity really kind of came to the fore as 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 an option for largely institutional investors or high net worth investors. Uh, are those higher rates of return relative to public equity markets still available, or has some of the so-called illiquidity premium been wrung out of those markets given the maturity of the business? That's a great question, and and it's one that I think you know no one has a crystal ball. So. But what we do say is that um, the the illiquidity premium has come under some pressure. There's no doubt about that. As you in, you know, increase the the means of investors being able to access private assets, you also have structures which give investors a bit more liquidity within the overall structure. Better liquidity premium is inevitably going to is going to come down a bit. But what we actually see is one of the attractions of investing in private equity is that you're able to address. Other forms of of a, of a of a return premium, which you can get over over more sort of liquid or listed assets. An example being that, for example, a, a company which um, which has been, let's say, is owned by a founder or owned by a family. It's been it's been growing successfully, but in order to be able to address the kind of the broader market, the broader geography, it needs new you know new investment. It needs new management, maybe, or it needs a new 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 source of capital and resources. Um, to really sort of take it to that to that next level, often that takes very you know very close and careful stewardship, which is not often the case with you know, you might get from a listed you know from listed equities, but in but in a case of a private equity ownership where you have shareholders which work working very closely with the company, you can actually unlock you know that that premium, and we call that almost like a complexity premium. It's almost like you know you're able to kind of bring you know very specialist shareholders and sponsors to to a company that really allow it to kind of go through that next stage of growth. And that's not something which we think the listed equity markets are able to really address because of the sense of that very diverse ownership base, which often comes with that. Um, so we do think that that source of higher return is still possible um, within within private assets, but it does require investors to look harder to find. Um, as opposed to that general sort of illiquidity premium that may have been, you know, that may have helped kind of, you know, generate that, that higher return in the past. And I suspect that also affects the size of the deals as well, because you're almost describing what used to be called merchant banking, where companies would be bought in by a firm either to buy the management and their expertise or to bring in new management, new capital to help expand the business, where large-scale private equity typically is a buyout business uh, and, and then a restructuring and then a flip. Is is that the difference that that comes with this complexity premium that you're talking about? That's exactly right. And you know what we see is that that complexity premium we believe is greater for the the smaller, the medium-sized companies where they need that kind of their closest stewardship than what you could get from, say, for example, a larger buyout, where generally it's a little bit more emphasis on the financial engineering to to drive that 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 higher return. And and again, I mean, you know, looking at how the macro environment is changing, you know, financial engineering is becoming more challenging. Once you've got the you know the higher interest rates, you know, the 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 the, the more challenging sort of credit markets that we're working with. So, we feel you know we feel you know more confident that that complexity premium in terms of that that uh, really addressing or transforming a company is 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 more sustainable over these these this different or the, the changing market cycle. And and you mentioned also diversification, and we talk a lot about this when it comes to whether it's the endowment model, which used the combination uh, under David Swenson, the late David Swenson's kind of tutelage of having public equities, uh, private equity, uh, hedge funds, real estate, various forms of credit. When, when it comes to diversifying one's portfolio, whether it's institutional or high net worth, where does this particular brand of private asset fit? Do you, is, it, is it alongside larger private equity or does it replace that category altogether? 
I think it, every investor is going to have a different view on this and, and a different approach and a different strategy, but we see it as complementary. I mean, we think that, you know, we're not saying that, uh, you know, that, that, that our returns are always going to be above that of, of large buyout. That, that's absolutely not the case. Um, but we do think that you're driving performance from a, from a different source than what you might get with large buyout. Hence why we think it's more complementary than sort of substitutable. Um, you know, and that's really important, I think, for the investor at the end of the day, they're looking for, you know, a diverse source of, 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 of return and of performance. Um, and that's why, you know, that's ultimately what the, the objective of the investor should be. Let me ask you about the, the the presence of these large players who, as I said, in one case, managed to raise a $30 billion pool of capital, which is the largest in, in history. When, when you see these types of raises take place and, and you see enormous players coming in, even in this environment with, with loads of liquidity, does it distort the marketplace and does it distort pricing when you're looking for opportunity sets, even in smaller or mid-sized businesses? It certainly has an impact on the market and, and some of the pricing. I mean, we probably saw the most extreme cases in in the later stage sort of, you know, VC um, growth, um, especially with those that focus on kind of the, the crossover or, you know, buying buying kind of companies at a pre-IPO stage. The, the, the amount of capital that went into that, that, that later stage of sort of VC financing really did have an impact in terms of what was you know, driving the valuations. And we're kind of seeing some of the impact of that now as, as some of that's been some of that pullback. Um, I mean, sticking to the example you gave where you see that, you know, you have that, that, that mega, mega buyout fund. Um, I mean, we actually see that as a, as, as a welcome development because we actually see those sorts of funds as important buyers of the businesses that we've, we've invested in. Mm-hmm. So in many respects, it's another source of exit for us because you have a company which has grown to a stage that perhaps previously might, you know, an IPO might have been the only exit route. But when you have those those very large buyout funds, it, it is an important exit route for us. And working with those sort of secondary um, secondary buyers is, is is very important for the overall health to the kind of you know the the ecosystem that 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 private equity has now become. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download. Since you use the word ecosystem, uh, let, let's. Go back to impact, which is something you also mentioned, and and, and the function of uh, private equity and private asset players in ESG. Um, it, it, it's in in a strange way, as much as it's being adopted and 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 pushed by institutional investors, particularly in the United States, you're getting some pushback on on ESG and and some of the demands being made by investors of, of the companies uh, either that they invest in or that they purchase, and on a state by state in the U.S. basis. Um, you start to see some issues around whether or not states want ESG a- as a component of uh, the investing process. How how do you square that here in the U.S. versus what you're with what you're seeing elsewhere in the world? Yeah, and it's a very topical issue, so it's good you bring it up. I mean, I think the uh, I mean, there's two sides to it. I think firstly. I think the we've actually tried to move on from saying just ESG because I think ESG is such a broad category of 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 impact um, of, of, an, of an impact strategy. You need to be a little bit more precise as to what it is we're looking to we're look, looking to do. Um, I think what we do see is that uh, investors, for example, in Europe have a kind of a higher focus on climate change, sustainable investing. With that sort of the, the, you know the focus on you know the carbon emissions being probably top of the list. Whereas in the in, in the US and North America, we've seen probably greater emphasis on the more social aspects that comes with investing. So 
it, it is important that you know you do have to kind of observe the different preferences that investors have when you start saying you know there's more to investing than just generating a high return there's a responsibility that comes with with investing um and and i think you have to be very careful in terms of how you address that i think what we've seen in you know in in in, in the last couple of weeks in the us especially is is I mean, I, I I believe it's it's a bit of a pity because I think it's it's it, you know it's it's kind of attracted a lot of headlines, but in a way which is not being very constructive to what is the overall purpose here. And what we're saying is, look, we're not saying that we're going to, you know, we're not investing in companies because of you know something something that they 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 do. I mean, in fact, many of the energy companies which Schroders as a whole invests in are also very keen to kind of transition their business. So I think it's very much about sort of thinking about when we invest in a business, you know, there's got to be kind of a very sort of whole and comprehensive look at what that business is doing to address some of the challenges which which the world is facing. And we really do believe that if you take that sort of responsible investing approach, that actually does lead to higher returns. So in, again, it, it's also feeding into the, the best interests of the investor. But it's a very complex topic. And I do think that, I mean, when it's politicized, it does, unfortunately, sort of. It doesn't really help anyone in terms of really understanding as what is the purpose behind it and what are the what are the factors that we're really trying to address by taking a a broader look at the companies we're investing in, rather than just looking at it through a financial financial lens only. And you know, let me just did drill down a little bit on this particular topic because it, it's almost um, a set of binary options. You look at the state of California mandating that uh, internal combustion engines go away in the next several years in their state. And then you look at the state of Florida, where the governor has outright rejected ESG as a component of investing. Do you have to, in this world now, kind of thread a needle almost on a, in the US anyway, state by state, pension by pension, investor by investor basis in order to meet requirements that they may have when it comes to the type of investing you're doing? It does pose challenges. I mean, certainly, you know, you. You know, you have to be you have to be aware of that as to when when, for example, you're raising a new fund as to what is the you know, what are investors focused upon? Um, I mean, that that situation also extends to some of the geopolitical um, tensions we see in the world today. Um, You know, there are certain investors that have chosen not to invest in Asia because of, you know, some of the changes that have happened in the last 12 months um, around the world. Um, So in that sense, you're you know, you're never going to be in a situation where you have something that that, you know, that ticks the box for everyone. Um, and, you know, that is something which, um, you know, we, we try and address by structuring, you know, maybe it's a mandate or some kind of specific sort of, you know, managed account around some investors if they have specific preferences around that. I mean, for example, if going back to the an example in Europe where we have an investor that has very sort of specific requirements in terms of the sort of companies that are investing in, and the, um, the criteria that they apply, um, you know, that often means that it has to be done outside of a, of a of a general fund. So, you know, there is a there is a way around it. Um, I mean, there are things where you know we might not necessarily agree with, um, you know, how a, you know you know a, a state or kind of a, you know an organization um, might wish to invest. In which case, you know, if we can't make it, if we can't meet in the middle, then then it's not going to work. But um, but I do think, you know, having that means of being able to kind of flex and adjust. How an investment strategy is actually implemented is now absolutely essential, really, for having a successful private equity business or private assets business. Now, you mentioned liquidity earlier on as well. And I want to go back to that for a moment because the private equity business has, has shifted dramatically over the last many years to include early exits, uh, private equity strips where investors can buy vintages of 
of capital investments and and not necessarily wait a full seven or eight or nine years uh, to purchase a, a component of a private equity tranche. How is that affecting your business and how are these various liquidity options uh, affecting what you described earlier as both the illiquidity and the complexity premium that's involved with buying, managing businesses and then harvesting returns later on? I think it's really interesting. I mean, I really, I really, you know, I love the the options which are now kind of, you know, now available to investors. Um, I think it also comes with, you know, there has to be there's a there's a responsibility that comes with um, a manager and 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 how we, you know, how we explain the, how it functions, how it works to to investors. Um, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, many of these investments are illiquid. Um, we can, of course. Um, structure funds in a way which provides some liquidity, um, but there has to be an understanding from the investor that you know that there is not a magic wand that suddenly kind of creates liquidity. Um, and especially in times of stress, there has to be an understanding that these are still long-term investments. I think what's interesting is that the, as I mentioned earlier, some of the product structuring, the innovation in the products have really opened up new options. So you can create almost. A small element of liquidity, what we might call, say, a natural liquidity that comes from this asset class. If you have a diverse portfolio, diverse by 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 geography, by vintage, um, by sector, for example, you know, you 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 do create this kind of almost like this this natural distribution um, of or natural liquidity that comes from the returns you get from from your portfolio, and that helps give investors a bit more flexibility, a bit more choice. And the way we often describe it is that there's almost like two types of liquidity. There's liquidity that, you know, that an individual investor might need because of personal circumstances. And then there's liquidity that investors might need when, when everyone wants to run for the exit because of a market crash. Hmm. You know, private assets are never going to cater for the second type of liquidity, but, you know, we can structure it in a way that caters for the first. So to give investors that little bit more flexibility so they're not tied into a fund for 10 to 15 years. I think the other aspect is all that regulators are recognizing this. I think there's a greater understanding, greater accommodation to also allow private investors, investors that haven't been able to access private equity in the past because of the nature of the funds. Regulators recognize that, you know, you know, you shouldn't restrict all investors from, you know, you shouldn't restrict private investors from accessing this because there is also an important, you know, you know, part of a portfolio construction, um, which they need to recognize. And then, of course, technology is also transforming things. The way that you can um, access investors in terms of how you communicate to them, how you provide them with access to be able to invest in these funds. All of these things, you know, for example, even crowd crowd investing or crowd crowdfunding or, or peer-to-peer lending, all of these things are quite recent developments, all of which do in, allow investors to, to better access this. It does improve the liquidity, but, you know, it's also very important to recognize at the end of the day that these are long-term investments, and that's a message which should never be forgotten. Let me ask you about the short term, though, uh, with respect to where we are right now in public markets, uh, where we have effectively a global bear market in, in public equities. We have many central banks raising interest rates, most specifically here in the United States, where some are even projecting that short rates could go as high as four, if not five percent. When you see the Fed funds or, or to put it in kind of investment terms, a discount rate or risk free rate go that high. How much of a challenge does that represent in terms of finding assets to invest in that can compete with higher interest rates that are indeed risk-free? It raises the bar, no question about it. It makes it it makes it more challenging. Um, you know, you you also have to adjust your investment style. You have to look for businesses which have more pricing power. 
Um, so some of that, you know, some of that pricing, you know, in an inflationary environment, being able to pass on some of that pricing, you know, to 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 the client is an important consideration when you're looking at investments. Um, fundraising, you know, is also challenging because investors are a little bit more cautious in terms of, in, of committing to new funds. They have to have that sort of that um, that, that sense of of how these funds might perform in in, in different macroeconomic environment. One of the things, though, that we often do highlight, though, to to especially to the institutional investors, is that the ones over the, you know, we've been investing in private equity for for over twenty years now, so we have been through cycles in the past, and our our overall experience is that those investors that have a long term program that have a consistent approach to the investing are the ones that tend generally are the ones that are most satisfied with the sort of returns that they get, because trying to anticipate or trying to market market time. In private assets is is incredibly difficult, and in fact, I mean, it's, it's almost impossible. Um, so, you know, when you're making an, a commitment to 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 a fund now, you know, the pace at which that 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 commitment is going to be drawn down and going to be invested, you know, it will be over a period of time, and the and the cycle will be different, you know, next year or in two years' time than it is now. So, you have to have that sort of long term approach when you're investing in in, in private assets. Um, so that's for me is the most important aspect in terms of how we think about the current the current circumstances. My right, final question, and without explicitly saying what you've invested in, uh, when when you look out across the the spectrum of available assets and those that are most enticing, uh, what, what industry sectors look most appealing at the moment? One of the sectors that we like the most is healthcare. Um, you know, it's, it's it's diverse in the sense of you know you have all sorts of companies. I mean, healthcare is such a such a broad spectrum. Whether it's biotech all the way through to sort of a company providing services to to, to hospitals. Um, so in that sense, it gives a very sort of broad spectrum in terms of the type of investments, different returns, different sort of performance that you can invest in. It does exhibit, I think, you know, more stability in in a in a, in a business cycle than other sectors. So for us, that's you know that's uh, that's one of the sectors that we that we like most. We do also believe that technology is a is an attractive uh, traffic attractive part of the market to invest in. Now, obviously, it is it is challenging at the moment. There's no question about that. But one also must remember that you know innovation doesn't change with the business cycle. So people still have good ideas, and in fact, actually, in this environment. And the environment we've been kind of you know moving into, in fact, actually it's it's perhaps even you know better to to access some of those ideas and to try and monetize them than it might have been sort of 12, 12 months or you know eighteen months ago. So, you know, there is an element here of making sure that you can really sort of still still identify the good opportunities, the good ideas, and 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 you know put money behind it. But obviously, you know, thinking about how you know, how quickly the exit from that, that opportunity might be, or being, having the flexibility to say, right, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to invest in this business, you know, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, you know, I really do believe in the long-term potential. I'm going to sit it out for, for as long as it might be to, in order to get that exit opportunity, that long-term mindset is, is, is very important in this sort of market environment. All right, Tim, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure to have you. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much. Tim Bullish, uh, the head of private equity product management at Schroeder's, joining us in today's U.S. Lens. And I'm Ron Ansana. Thanks for being with us. We will talk to you again soon. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website, schroeders.com forward slash the investor download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at Schroeder's podcast at schroeders.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. 
Thanks very much for listening, but above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers.